0: Education has always been a contradictory endeavor in this country, and it's had two contradictory impulses. On the one hand, as you said, corporations saw education as a way to discipline and control uh, the emerging uh, working class in the early uh, 1900s, late 1800s. And they saw the need for schools as a way to provide childcare for the current working class so that they could go and work in factories that would make the, the rich even richer. Uh, and then they also saw the need for A way to discipline and control the next generation of workers and to integrate them into a highly inequitable society. But on the other hand, education has also been a demand of working-class communities and of black folks uh, for a long time because people have known that there is no emancipation without education.
1: Hey folks, This is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. After the care industry, the sector of our economy that is closest to ground zero in this confluence of COVID, the recession, and the fight for racial justice is education. In particular, public school education. When the schools shut down as a necessary step In dealing with the pandemic, working-class families felt new stresses. Already, many had to deal with the choice of working in unsafe conditions or not working. And for many, the choice was made for them. Others lived in crowded neighborhoods or crowded homes where shelter-in-place orders put them in close proximity to neighbors, friends, and family where the virus could rapidly spread. The closing of public schools meant that youth were expected to learn from home, Parents who worked outside of the house had to now worry about the well-being of the children who were not supervised. Parents who worked from home had to deal with kids' Zoom bombing virtual office meetings. Parents who were unemployed dealt with the stress of paying bills and the stress of monitoring the children's behavior. And regardless of their employment situation, parents had additional teaching responsibilities. In such a chaotic situation, it was understandable that education would become a flashpoint for political struggle. For some conservatives, opening the schools became another quote-unquote freedom rallying cry. Some liberals saw school reopening as an essential step to minimizing any new racial disparities emerging from the pandemic. Teacher unions insisted that public health be a key criterion in any reopening, health for themselves and health for their students. Some parents wanted to open schools to relieve them of the burden of childcare. Other parents were concerned that reopening schools would be a mechanism through which their kids either got sick and/ or became virus carriers to extended family members. And with all this going on, it is important to remember that public schools did not serve most students well pre- COVID, and because of this, teacher unions. And community groups have been battling school officials, many political leaders, and sizable sectors of corporate America in efforts to transform public schools into genuine learning environments. Today's guest is Jesse Hagopian. Jesse teaches Ethnic Studies at Garfield High in Seattle and has been active with others around the country developing a liberation pedagogy and working with his union and others to build a social justice unionism that has the power to transform education. Recently, Jesse has published two books collecting essays on making teacher unions a force for racial and economic justice. I'm looking forward to our conversation. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become part of our communities to support the work we do here at Blackboard Talk. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com. And I promise to get back to you. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, It gives the mic to people with worlds of insight to share, who you might not hear elsewhere. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. Jesse, man, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate the invitation.
1: Real quick, man, you're a teacher from Seattle, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, what I teach t- ethnic studies for high school students at Garfield High School.
1: How long have you been doing that?
0: Well, you know, I feel like I've been there my whole life because I w- I graduated from from Garfield as well, mm-hmm. so it's definitely my home. I've been a bulldog for a long time, but I've okay. been teaching there the last ten years or so.
1: And they let you come back. Huh? That's kind of nice. Some people couldn't come back, you know. <laughs> so
0: yeah, yep. Well, cool. I never thought I would be back because. Uh, I wasn't a great student, and I didn't think I would ever be a teacher. So, it blows my mind sometimes when I'm walking in the hallways that yeah. that I'm here as a teacher now.
1: Yeah, you've been doing a lot of stuff on education, obviously, you know, and um, you have two books popped out, two edited volumes popped out. One's called Teacher Unions and Social Justice, and the other's called Black Lives Matter at School. So, so well done.
0: Got right on. Man. The really, Thank really, you. really
1: good material, man. So I want to talk about clear education and what's happening. But I want to start with kind of a, a, an idea, get your reaction to it. To me, we, need, we should look at, me, we meaning kind of folk-involved, kind of black freedom type of stuff, stuff right? Mm-hmm. We should see education being a black working class issue. A lot of times we don't actually talk about education from that perspective, just kind of treating the kids right, treating them wrong sort of thing. But I think it's always important to root it in a, in a different kind of dimension, you might say, have a different, different set of lens. Does that, that, that make sense to you?
0: Uh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt.
1: What I was thinking about in some ways, it's um, the it's black working class issue from three different perspectives, you might say. One is, is the actual workforce. Yes. That, that because we, we know we have a disproportionate number of black folks in the public sector, it's also manifest in schooling. And really, it's beyond just teachers, it's the clerical staff and everybody else as well. But also the parents, and given what's happening in society, we see more and more working class folks staying in public schools. And those mm-hmm. who think they can buy their way out, they buy their way out. So look at the black parents, are largely working class, and then the kids who are there, some backgrounds are going to some places as well. But I just think the idea of trying to take the idea of education, rooted from a Perspective of being a black working class teacher is very important.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You
1: know, I, I saw in one of your books, you had a chapter on the history of the Chicago Teachers Union. And by the way, that's important. I'm from Chicago. So oh, okay. I, like, I, I try to always kind of imbibe imbib- anything I can from Chicago. And I appreciate seeing that kind of history. And what's fascinating, you were talking about how, if you examine some of the origins of teacher unionism in Chicago, you talked about how they were doing battle with some of the elites and their views, how to shape the public schools. I don't I can't quote you for sure, but you're saying roughly that, that the elite plan was to shape the public schools to satisfy the needs of industrial society at the time around the turn of the 1900s, basically. Can you expand on that analysis? For sure.
0: For sure. Um, And thank you for raising all these issues. I definitely think education is a black working class issue there's battles right now to try to save the jobs of black teachers that are increasingly disappearing. You know, we've lost some 26,000 black teachers across the U.S. since 2002, and, you know, a profession that once attracted a lot of uh, black folks um, to, to build a career is increasingly becoming hostile. Uh, and pushing us out and closing schools in black neighborhoods. And I think that education has always been a contradictory endeavor in this country, and it's had two contradictory impulses. On the one hand, as you said, corporations saw education as a way to discipline and control uh, the emerging uh, working class in the early uh, 1900s, late 1800s, and they saw the need for schools as a way to provide childcare for the current working class, so that they could go and work in factories that would make the the rich even richer. Uh, and then they also saw the need for a way to discipline and control the next generation of workers and to integrate them into a highly inequitable society. But on the other hand, education has also been a demand of working class communities and of black folks uh, for a long time because people have known that there is no uh, emancipation without education. And that's why, you know, in the wake of the Civil War during the Reconstruction era black people built scores of schools across the South and actually built integrated schools where poor white people also were sending their kids to school for the first time. So in the 1860s they had integrated schools in the South for a time before the Jim Crow laws came and shut that all down. Uh, But Those schools were built because the newly freed enslaved people knew that uh, they couldn't truly get free without a a robust education. And so I think this contradictory impulse between those who see education as a means of controlling and integrating people into an, an equitable society and those who see it as liberatory means that our public school system has always been an explosive site of struggle throughout history. And that certainly was true in Chicago in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I mean, you know, Chicago was the the birthplace of the fight for the eight-hour day and the, the Haymarket Martyrs uh, happened there that led to, to May Day and the, the eight-hour workday. And that same brawl between capital and labor spilled out into the schoolyards of Chicago, and a seminal figure named Haley, Margaret Haley, was an early uh, teachers union organizer who uh, wanted to see um, education wrestled away from the corporate elites, the industrialists, and uh, wanted to see the empowerment of of educators.
1: Yeah, I like the way you mentioned that you had to kind of Dueling kind of demands, you might say, on the school system, that the demands really leap the demands of, of parents. I mean, I like it for a lot of reasons, and particularly because you set it up a, a story where we see struggle, you said, we see a consultation over what direction will go in education. And to me, it's important because a lot of times in our analyses on the, on the left, we portray things being static,
0: mm.
1: always has been, implication always will be, right? And, I mean, nothing always has been. Things always are, are in motion, always are, are in change. And you laid out the, the kind of the, things are dynamic. In other words, the, the fight of parents for a certain vision of education and the fight from the elites for something else. So you, you said that kind of around 1900, the goal was to basically provide childcare for, for workers and to get people kind of trained for a factory-type job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What might be the interest of the elite today in education, if you try to link it to some of their vision of of the economy and society? How would you kind of describe that?
0: Absolutely. I think it's a very similar dynamic today. I think once you know the history of how and why the public schools were enacted as both a project of the wealthy to train kids to be on time, right? That's why you have a bell system, much like in the factories at the time. Um, to train them to listen unequivocally to a teacher who at that time could also beat you if you uh, didn't follow the rules so that you could learn to be disciplined and follow the directions of a boss, right? Um, And also with the wave of immigrants coming over, especially from Europe, they wanted these new uh, working class people to believe in America as the great bastion of freedom right and so they taught history that reflected that and today we see a very similar setup for the American public school system you have a, a school system that is largely still about discipline so um, And we know that especially it's about discipline of black and brown bodies. Black students are suspended at some four times the rates of white students for the same infractions. Black girls are the most disproportionately suspended in the public schools at seven times the rates of white girls. You have the same impulse. We have one of the most inequitable societies in the history of the world where you have some eight people have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion people on the planet. And how do those people maintain that staggering level of inequality? One of the secrets is through the education system that ranks and sorts kids based on test scores and grades and then uh, inserts them into their position in society, whether that's uh, higher grades and test scores that lead to, to managerial class or lower grades and test scores that lead to, to working class and working poor jobs or increasingly the school to prison pipeline where kids aren't even graduating from schools and are being shipped into into prisons as the the explosion of mass incarceration has happened in this country we've seen schools being a major contributor to that when they invest more in metal detectors and police officers than they do in wraparound services and healthcare and lower class sizes and and school counselors and school psychologists and so our schools are still largely serving to rank and sort kids into uh, inequitable society. But at the same time, you also have the, the other impulse in education, the freedom impulse, where you have students, parents, and educators organizing to fight to reclaim the schools, to transform them, to make them something liberatory. And, and that battle has been beautiful to see unfold across this country, especially in recent years.
1: I think it's really important to talk about, as you said, the kind of the, the way that education fits into our society today. A lot of times, we're so much talking about, as you call, the freedom impulse, which is incredibly important. We sometimes lose sight of the larger context. And when it happens sometimes, before we was just on the issue of, of, say, charter schools and privatization, and now the larger way things plug in. So clearly the idea of, of trying to get more and more charter schools is, is part of the game plan they, they shape education. That's right. But we know that it wasn't as if prior to charter schools, we had a phenomenally great public system for black kids. We knew that, right? So it's important to have a broader context as well. Now, I was reading some more stuff that you wrote, man. Um, it was something in the Progressive magazine. And you talked about, because you, you called the thing a deficit model of education. Yeah. Um, what did you mean by that?
0: Yeah, the deficit model of education is really the mainstream kind of common sense narrative that drives most of the conversations about race and education today. It's the narrative that black kids are perpetually behind white kids, especially as measured by standardized test scores. So it's the language of the quote-unquote achievement gap. And I think there are a few things that are deeply troubling about this narrative right? Uh, When we hear that black kids uh, are at a deficit and are perpetually behind white kids in terms of their test scores, it really doesn't acknowledge the incredible strength and brilliance of our black children. And I'll give you an example. You know, at Garfield, where I teach, I've I've taught a lot of different classes. I've taught the general ed history courses. I've taught the AP U.S. history courses. And I helped found the ethnic studies course there. And when I began to teach the ethnic studies class at Garfield, it was the first time I had a truly integrated class because before I had mostly white students in my AP class and mostly uh, BIPOC students in my general ed classes. But I had an integrated class in my ethnic studies course. And I told the students on day one, You're not going to take any standardized tests in this class. There will be no multiple-choice bubble tests in my course because they really hide more than they reveal about what you know. So let's say you circle A for your answer. And let's say A was correct. Well, I don't know if you just guessed it or if you actually knew it. Let's say A was incorrect and you circled A. I don't know if you had a really interesting thought process between A and B and you knew it was one or the other and there was actually some interesting reason that you chose A even if it wasn't the generally accepted answer, right? That whole thought process is hidden in that circling of A and I want to know how you think and how you arrived at answers and more importantly, I want to reframe knowledge to be about finding problems in our community, in our school, in our society, and then finding collective solutions to those problems. And that can't be done with A, B, C, D, multiple choice testing. And right away, uh, it changed the calculus in my class because my AP white students were really good at eliminating wrong answer choices and scoring high on these exams. And my black students generally often weren't as adept at that skill. But when the goal was to identify problems in the community and society and find collective solutions to them, well, all of a sudden, my black students were highly advanced, and they were tutoring my white students about institutional racism and about the long black freedom struggle and ideas for changing our society to make it better. And so, in some regards, our black and brown students are far and away uh, more advanced than other students in their, in their thinking. Um, and we need to actually have a strengths-based approach to, to analyzing uh, our students' knowledge and see that there are different ways to know things, right? But the other thing that this deficit model doesn't acknowledge is what Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings has called the education debt, and that's about what's owed to black children because of the systemic lack of support and underfunding of their schools, right? There was a recent study that came out that showed that white schools have about $23 billion more money than schools that serve predominantly students of color in this country, right? That is a debt that we need to collect on and uh when you understand the problem in education around that debt you see that it's not the black students failure to achieve that's the problem it's our systems failure to meet their needs and then finally i would say that that deficit model really misses the deep lessons that are that are being learned right now i mean one of the the major narratives right now is about learning loss due to the covid pandemic and how students who are receiving remote schooling are are way behind and you know there's been some really terrible op-eds penned by places like the new york times that says you know we have a lost generation who will be hobbled uh by uh, this remote schooling endeavor and how black students are going to be hopelessly behind again and I look at what happened this spring and summer when, in the wake of the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, black youth across this country, I think, created one of the greatest collective group projects in the history of our country. And they taught the the world the power of solidarity and collective action when they took the streets and demanded to defund the police and use that money for education and healthcare, right? I think our kids are learning a lot about the nature of our society right now and this deficit model uh, needs to go.
1: I'm gonna come back to the whole learning loss thing in a second, but as you're talking, so I hadn't thought about, you, you mentioned how how you changed the nature of the testing, then you saw different groups perform differently, you might say. And as you're talking, I was saying, wow, you know, there's always like an internal sort of dynamic going on among students between the quote-unquote smart kids and quote-unquote unsmart kids, right? And you changed that that dynamic. Did you see how people behaved differently to one another because of that? Did that happen or not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was magic to see predominantly white AP students all of a sudden revere their peers who were black and brown in a way that they had been trained to see them as lesser, and now they were—they were actually collaborating them, asking them for help, and and seeing uh, their brilliance. And this is, I think, one of the biggest problems with the corporate education reform movement in this country that's centered on high-stakes standardized testing and privatizing schools with charters. Right? They—they want to. See, as I've said, education as a way to discipline people to to go into their uh, segment of society. But I think when we create authentic assessments that are about problem solving, then we can actually build a more collaborative society.
1: You know, what I haven't thought about, man, as I keep kind of teasing out what you're saying in different directions, is in some ways was I, I'm always kind of bothered by some of the talk about how we handle implicit, implicit bias mm-hmm. as a way that we kind of like like talk someone out of it, basically, right? Yeah. And, and, but your, the, the example you gave was that simply by having new practices for had different relationships, a different approach, mm-hmm. not a matter of trying to show people these are the facts that you didn't know or you didn't know what you did, but more you put people, in this case students, in new environments and they begin to change how they relate to one another. That's, I hadn't thought about that. That's a ph- phenomenal insight, about the importance of actually education from people being in motion, not education from people sitting there and absorbing something like a like a hmm. log, basically. That That's yeah. cool, man. That's cool. Back to the learning loss thing, man, it's a little bit. I get the idea that folk learn different things different ways. But I'm still concerned about... If we dreamed up a world, there'd be some value in class time, mm-hmm. okay, in face-to-face time. Teachers are going to cause it, and that time has been lost at some level. How do you see yeah. dealing with that?
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that because uh, definitely schooling is not done best online. <laughs> I'll be the the first to say that, and you know, part of the corporate education reform uh, model is about. Replacing teachers with computer screens and wanting to move everything online uh, in order to cut the the cost of paying teachers and have one teacher educate hundreds of students on on a screen, right? And I completely reject that because I think the true power of education is when you come together in a classroom and you work together to solve problems and that just can't be replicated online and so there are definitely limitations that are happening right now because of remote schooling um that are true challenges but uh i think the the limitations that they are saying right that the mainstream media and the corporate education reformers are talking about are how we're going to see test scores plummet right well Every major research study around test scores has shown that what test scores measure more than anything else is your zip code. They don't measure your learning, your aptitude, your intelligence. They measure your access to resource, resources, and largely that correlates with what neighborhood you live in, right? And so test scores uh, really are about your proximity, to dominant white culture. And uh, so I think the fear that test scores might go down is really not the one that's the big problem. For me, it's, it's uh, kids not having the social and emotional growth that occurs when you're collaborating with other people in the classroom. And so I definitely hope that uh, we can build a struggle to get our students and teachers Vaccinated quickly and and back in classrooms uh, when it's safe to do so. Um, but I I'll, I want to caution us not to to fall into a, simply a deficit model of, of viewing our
1: kids. Yeah, yeah. One last question on this topic we we'll, we'll push on. So Joe Biden just gave you a call, man. Said just you're in charge. <laughs> I'm giving you a blank check. I'll sign it. You feeling the rest of it? I'm inspecting that call tomorrow. <laughs> well, he's going to do it tonight, actually, by the oh, way. But good. I'll, I'll, I'll put it on pause, okay? Uh, excellent. But seriously, man, so what would you do, man? So you, you have some, some capacity to kind of set up a school system right, okay? Yeah. And you'd be going through a year, year plus of you know, this different kind of way we're doing things, and we can go back to something. Not so much what's your final step, your kind of dream world, but the, the, the transition piece kind of the the, the the landing piece, what would, what would it be look like?
0: Well, I would immediately reverse his first major educational move, which was he announced a week ago that he would do something even worse than Betsy DeVos. I didn't imagine that was possible. We have one of the worst education secretaries in the history of the world. And Even she was able to suspend the high-stakes standardized tests last spring when the pandemic broke out. And now the Biden administration announced they're reversing that. And in the middle of a pandemic, they're going to ask students to spend many hours filling out bubbles online and being labeled and shamed uh, around their, their scores. And sometimes these scores can actually lead to schools being closed, students being denied promotion or graduation. And it's just extremely cruel in the middle of a pandemic. Um, You know, I mean, these tests are always harmful. They were uh, first invented by eugenicists. And that's a history everybody should know, that high-stakes standardized testing in this country was adopted by the public schools in the early 1900s at the behest of eugenicists who developed these tests uh, as an effort to try to prove white male supremacy. And they've been disguising uh, merit, uh, you know, and trying to sell students' achievement as merit when really they're reproducing inequality for generations. And... So, the first thing I would do is scrap the standardized testing regime and move to authentic forms of assessment like performance based assessments. And these performance based assessments are actually really valued in our society, but they just aren't used in K 12 education. Because if you think about the PhD process, right, that's widely regarded as very rigorous and important form of assessment in our society. But for some reason, we can't manage to figure out how to apply that to the public schools largely. But in New York, there's a network of some 30 schools, the consortium schools for performance-based assessments. And these schools have a waiver and don't have to give the tests. And they're fully public schools, but they do assessment like that PhD model where you develop a thesis with a mentor and work with your peers over time. And if the evidence doesn't support your thesis, you revise your thesis. And at the end of a term, you defend your thesis to a panel of experts, right? So let's say you're in a language arts class in high school and you've developed a thesis about the impact of Black literature on America. And then you present that you would actually get authors from New York City to come and hear your thesis, right? And then you get feedback on that. And I think when we change the assessments, we change education. Because right now, so much of schooling is about preparing kids for the next high-stakes exam that teachers aren't able to teach to their passion or their even their knowledge or teach to what the students are asking to learn about because their schools might get closed if they don't raise the test scores. So uh, millions of educators across the country every day are drilling kids to prepare them for the next standardized test. Um, And we're reducing knowledge to what some corporation thinks is important, uh, not to what will better our communities. So I think the first step is changing the assessments because that can change the nature of learning in, in our society. Um, But, you know, I would build on that to have wraparound services in our schools so that schools become hubs of the community with free health care and dental care and eye care. We would have uh, free meals for the community and, you know, after school programs and tutoring services. And, you know, there's been really amazing examples of how that can work. LeBron James actually uh, recently invested in a public school. He didn't turn it into a charter like many celebrities do. And he just invested in a public school and gave that school the wraparound services those kids need. And the final thing I would I would do uh, would be to begin to break down the iron wall that we've created between the academic disciplines. And I think it would be amazing to see schools... Uh, not just offer these discrete subjects of math, science, language arts, social studies, etc., but move to problem-based learning. For example, what if students were able to enroll in a class called Should We Defund the Police? And in that class, you studied math by analyzing the city budgets, working out the percentages, re-envisioning city budgets, You studied history by learning about the history of police and how they emerged from slave patrols in the South and from strike-breaking brigades in the North, right? And you learned language arts by writing essays and speeches that you would deliver to the city council about your your findings and your conclusions about the police, right? Right. So I think we could move to problem-based learning courses that would engage our students in the pressing questions that we're facing in our society today. And you would see much more engagement with the curriculum than you do now.
1: Jesse, I want to shift gears a second and, and talk a little bit more detail about unions and the black community, the teaching, teaching unions and black community. Now, as looking at your books and so re- reflecting on the kind of the recent activism in different cities, Now, I thought back to 1968 and the battle in New York and Brooklyn um, in the community of Ocean Hill and Brownsville, You know, black parents there and, and the United Federation of Teachers, the UFT there. People in the audience may not know that one of the manifestations of the 60s community control movement was the 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 thrust to get parents more involved in controlling schools. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and what happened is that kind of ran up against the teachers' view of their contract, at least some teachers' view of their contract. Who should have the final say? And it ended up with on one hand you had black parents demanding control of their schools, you had teachers on strike, not teaching, mm-hmm. to maintain their power. And that's kind of a major battle between unions and, and black community. And in some ways, it became racialized as well. And um, that was major. But now it seems different, though. Mm. So so when you look at the issue of unions and the black community, how have things changed from that snapshot view of what happened in 68? um, How have things changed, do you think?
0: Yeah, that's a really important question. Because the Ocean Hill-Brownville education struggle, I think, was a truly shameful chapter in the union movement. And it shows the deep problems that emerge if you don't take a social justice union approach, right? And so uh, you had New York City teachers going on strike in 68 um, when the school board of the mostly black Brooklyn neighborhood transferred a a set of white teachers and administrators because black families wanted community control, right? Right. And so the union got on the wrong side of the black freedom movement and was actually like blocking, uh, trying to block students from going into school and going on strike, um, against this, this demand for, for greater control by black communities over their schools. And you think you're right. A lot has changed since then. Right.
1: Um, just one quick thing before you go further yeah. that, man, I want point to point to the audience. The whole issue of the union then going being on the wrong side of history, as you said, yeah. is linked to McCarthyism also. Because you actually had you had a, a more progressive left wing union in New York City. That's right. Who had a who had a more expansive view of unionism. That kind of rather, their kind of vision of social justice unionism back in the day, day, right? Yes. And and, and during, because of McCarthyism, that union was smashed. And the results were the unionists who decided to then to oppose the black community. So I want to point that out there as well that that wasn't simply a, a view of unions against the black community, but a certain a certain segment of the union movement was against the black community. But go on, I to, I'm gonna put No, that in there, no, sorry. that's
0: such an important point. And the group that was just simply known as the teachers' union in the 1930s was organized largely by members of the Communist Party, and that was one of the most incredible examples of the power of unionism. They they fought not only for bread and butter issues around uh, better conditions for teachers, but they partnered with the NAACP to uh, identify racist textbooks that were glorifying the Ku Klux Klan and replacing them with anti-racist materials, right? And it was an incredible uh, coalition that was formed to help fight for an anti-racist education in the 1930s but then, as you said, because of McCarthyism and the anti-communist Red Scare, they smashed the Teachers Union, and the result was a union that lacked a racial consciousness, as you said. And so um, that was really harmful in that 1968 strike. And I think a lot has changed since then, because we've seen the emergence uh, you know, the reemergence of a class struggle uh, form of unionism that's rooted in racial justice. And I really think we owe so much to our dear sister, Karen Lewis, who recently passed away, uh, who was the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union. May she rest in power, or as someone recently eulogized, may she rest in red, that red Chicago teacher's uh, color, and I've called her the new labor slugger. The One of the founding members of the Chicago Educators Union was Margaret Haley, who was called the lady labor slugger, and I think Karen Lewis was our new labor slugger. She was a champion for black educators and families, but, but really showed the power of social justice unionism when she got elected and led a strike in 2012 for what they called the schools our children deserve. And it was an incredible struggle that uh, won uh, many things for the educators, but also was largely about fighting for the resources that children in in predominantly black and brown schools needed. And that example of bringing in community and families into the struggle together to demand, uh, you know, more resources for the schools, libraries in schools that that were lacking, um, you know, uh, even... Air conditioning and schools that got hot, way too hot in the summer and the spring and summer, uh, all kinds of just basics that schools serving predominantly kids of color didn't have, drew in uh, those families of color into the struggle, and it was a united movement, and that I think laid the basis for. What we've seen in recent years, which is really a reemergence of educators as a leading force in the labor movement in this country. So you had the Red State Revolt that erupted in 2018, and that was truly breathtaking because it happened in Republican-controlled states in the South. And you had Republican state legislatures who staked their entire reputations on saying they would never raise taxes no matter what happened all of a sudden succumbing to the power of the entire state of teachers in west virginia and oklahoma and other places um, the entire state of teachers were on strike and there was nothing those state legislators could do except for raise taxes to fund education and that uh Red state revolt, you know, spilled over to Arizona and then into into blue states as well. One of the most incredible examples was in Los Angeles. And that strike is one that I think everyone should study because in L.A., the educators raised the demands of ending police random searches of students, which was a central demand of a group called Students Deserve who were fighting to stop the racist scapegoating of black students that was going on by police in the schools. And the, the educators in LA also fought to get a, a million dollar fund for undocumented students to have access to legal counsel. And they fought for a nurse in every school. And by taking up demands that their families really cherished they were able to build a united movement much the way karen lewis had had taught us all how to do and so we're seeing strikes out you know in oakland and, and denver happen there was a strike wave across my home state of washington uh in many locals and there's a new kind of unionism emerging in this country that is fusing the social movements in the streets of like Black Lives Matter or the immigrant rights movement, with the demands and the power uh, of organized labor in the schools. And I think educators are uniquely positioned in our society to bring together the power of organized labor with the demands of the communities and families they serve.
1: So, just, just another question, man. What does it mean? In the concrete real world, for unions to embrace Black Lives Matter. And I mean beyond resolution. I don't wanna see another damn resolution, though. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> I can I write a good you. resolution, okay? <laughs> um, and seriously, though, they're important. They're a step of the process, but they're very much the very beginning part of the process. So beyond the resolution stage, if unions wanted to do right or embrace Black Lives Matter, what would it look like?
0: Yeah. That's a great question. Um, You know, uh, we did finally force the American Federation of Teachers to pass a resolution supporting Black Lives Matter at school this year. It took four years, and they finally uh, supported it. My union, the NEA, the largest educators union, uh, had passed that several years ago. And you're right, it's just the very first step, right? It is... Uh, it helps. It can help raise consciousness, but it doesn't actually implement a school system that values Black lives. And so I think the next step is using the power that we have as organized workers to make demands of our system. And um, ultimately, we can withhold our labor or strike if those demands aren't met. And so the four demands of Black Lives Matter at School movement are to end zero-tolerance discipline and replace it with restorative justice. The second demand is to hire more black teachers. Our third demand is to implement black studies and ethnic studies in K-12 curriculum. And finally, our demand is to fund counselors, not cops. And we've actually had some immense victories in recent days around... Uh, a few of those demands so here in seattle we just launched a black studies program in addition to the ethnic studies department and so for the first time students across seattle are taking an online uh you know zoom course that centers black people in the curriculum it's an incredible advancement but we also have seen police officers being chased out of schools in city after city Right, so beginning in Minneapolis this summer, uh in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, some courageous students there got a petition together. Uh, we include um an interview with one of those incredible students, Nathaniel, from Minneapolis in our book Black Lives Matter at School and you know they they removed the police. it spread to St Paul. The cops got kicked out there. it spread to. To Denver, it spread to Oakland public schools. I'm proud to say here in Seattle, we kicked the cops out of the schools as well. And it's all about replacing them now with counselors, with school psychologists, and with folks that can actually support our kids uh, instead of criminalize them and and, uh, punish them and brutalize them, as we've seen police do in school after school across the country. And so unions can play a major role in demanding that school boards cancel contracts with police officer, uh, guilds. And, uh, you know, I think that it here in Seattle as well, um, we were instrument, our union helped pass a resolution to remove the police from our, uh, labor guild i think they police have been on the wrong side of labor from the very beginning of the union movement they were first invented to break picket lines and they really had no place in in our movement and so i've i see that labor you know educator unions can play a really pivotal role in transforming the conversation and then fighting for specific policy demands that can make black students lives better
1: this may sound like a whack question, just by asking anyway. Um, have have high school students formed, for lack of a better term, high school chapters of local BLM movements?
0: Yeah. So uh, here in Seattle, we have uh, high school students and even middle school students who uh, have come together from from various organizations like the NAACP Youth Coalition and a newer organization called Youth Activists for Systemic Change. And they have come together to organize the Black Lives Matter at School effort. Uh, every year we have a week of action, the first week of February, uh, across the country. And so they, the students were the ones that planned our action here in Seattle. And I've heard similar stories in New York City and other places. So it's really amazing to see the youth taking the lead and organizing the Week of Action. And this year, our Week of Action tripled in size. You know, it was our fourth national uh, Week of Action. And we had about three times as many communities checking in, saying they had participated in our Week of Action. And we now have what's called the Year of Purpose. So every month we have a different Day of Action uh, and way for educators, caregivers, parents, students, community organizers to come together uh, to fight around our demands. And you can go to school dot com and and check out how to participate in our Year of Purpose.
1: Now, I was asking because as you were talking before, I thought about the example of um, Detroit during the early seventies. We had the League of Revolutionary Black Workers.
0: Yeah, and and they inspiration
1: to me. Yeah, they 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 had a a deep connection with the students who were also protesting at the time as well, and that notion of of having not just kind of kind of say. hands-off approach to students having a deep integrated approach is really important and refusing the, the movement deeper in the community itself so i wonder how that manifested um, yeah. up in, in the blm stuff and teachers
0: let, let me just say on that i i think that's such an important example of what we mean by social movement unionism because it's like the power of workers is so important but when you fuse that with what students are doing and what they demand it just exponentially increases that power. And I think that's really like where the term social justice, social movement, unionism uh, came, first came to be out of the struggles in South Africa when you had a student movement in South Africa that was demanding an end to apartheid and they were marching in the streets. But it was when Kasatu and the, the mine workers there were able to shut down the economy. Of South Africa, that they really were able to build the kind of coalition that was powerful enough to bring down the apartheid regime and have a revolution, right, and, and finally end that racist system. And I think that that is the legacy of social justice unionism that we need to look at today in a society that's increasingly marked by white supremacy and, and corporate Control.
1: I want to shift gears a bit one last time to focus a bit more on you. Um, so, what's your aha moment, man? What, what's you? What got you into the movement in, in a way that 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 drives you as you're driven now?
0: Yeah, for me, it was when I started teaching in Washington D.C. and I began teaching at an elementary school in Anacostia, and I would drive by the White House. And 10 minutes later, crossing the Anacostia River, I'd be in one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the country. And particularly in the wake of 9-11, I began teaching in 2001. And so when the attacks of 9-11 occurred, we actually saw the smoke rising from the Mm -hmm. Pentagon from my school window. And it, we were terrified that day. We didn't know what was happening, and we were scared. But something else deeply terrified me, which was in the wake of those attacks, I saw our government mobilize untold billions of dollars uh, uh, to go bomb children in the Middle East, but they couldn't fix the hole in the ceiling of my classroom that allowed it to just rain into my classroom and destroyed the first research project my kids ever did before they could present uh, on their 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 topic. And so I really saw the extreme brutality of segregation and poverty. It was 100% black school and very little resources there. And I learned that in our nation's capital, they could just throw away children like that in it. It made me want to figure out uh, not only how to be the best educator inside the classroom I could be, but I knew that I would also have to be part of a collective struggle to win the resources that our schools needed if we were going to truly uh, build a future that our kids deserved.
1: Speaking of collective struggle, what's your vision for black freedom?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think that black freedom is tied up in, in everybody's freedom. But I think when the least among us are empowered, then it allows everybody to get free. And so I think that um, especially the work of many um, black feminist socialists and, and queer black feminists, really have provided a framework for black liberation that we need to, to consider deeply. So people like Claudia Jones or the, the Combahee River Collective that understood that capitalism is a system that necessitates inequality, that pits working class people against each other to the benefit of the richest 1%, but it doesn't do so... Uh, evenly, right? That it especially oppresses black people and women and queer folks. And so we need to have an intersectional vision about how to build a movement that can center the most marginalized and that can leverage all of our power to shut the economy down and reopen it under collective democratic control. And I think to, to do that, To create that brand new kind of economy, to to create a socialist society where the wealth is shared and used to meet human need, not enrich a few people, we have to build a robust anti-racist movement that can break down the divisions between working class people. Because as long as uh, white working class folks think that the problem in our society is the black criminal or the Muslim terrorist, or the undocumented immigrant, then we will never have the power that we need in a united struggle to bring down the richest 1% and use the wealth to benefit us all. And so I think we need to build the strongest Black Lives Matter movement possible where everybody realizes that their own liberation is bound up in those of black folks
1: you kind of um, said something that had me think about a opening question for part two of our conversation, by the way, <laughs> in other words, how would you deal with, with, with students from those questions? Um, but that'd be part two of a conversation. Right on. Um, And what are you reading, man? What are you reading right now?
0: Oh, there is a fire new book out called we do this till we free us by oh, cool. Miriam Kaba. And she is one of the, the great abolitionist organizers and thinkers in our society and her vision for eliminating prisons and police and building a society based on care and mutual aid uh, is really inspiring. And I'm partway through it and and can't wait to finish it.
1: Sounds good, man. How about music? man? I love music, man. What music keeps keeps you inspired?
0: I love music. I play harmonica. I got a blues band, The Blue Tide. And, okay. uh, me and my friend that I've known since I was born, uh, play together. We have a show on Monday, um, Daniel Rapport and I, and, uh, you know, I, I went to Garfield high school and it's the school that Jimi Hendrix uh, went to. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a big Jimmy fan. Um, but I'm I'm actually helping to produce a eight week course with a group called Big World Breaks at Garfield, and we're doing the history of of music and art at Garfield. Uh, and so we've brought in some incredible artists that I've listened to recently. DJ Topspin, Vitamin D, uh, are some some of the hip hop artists our school has produced. So I've been I've been listening to them a lot recently as well.
1: Sounds cool, man. Sounds great. Oh, by the way, you know, we've dropped two books, names for you. We dropped now your, your song. You got to pay for these commercials, man. Okay. <laughs> right on. <laughs> anyway, this is great. Appreciate you, man. I, I'm really glad you came on. I'm glad to hook up with you, man. This has been great. Thank you. And we got to stay in touch, okay? Yeah, yeah.
0: Anytime, man. I, uh, I love talking with you.
1: That sounds great. So see you next time, man. Be well.
0: No doubt. Uh,
1: It was great to talk with Jesse. I particularly liked the idea of dual impulses surrounding education. On the one hand, the desire of parents for a better education for their kids. On the other hand, the desire of the economic elite for an educational system that helps to reproduce current racial and economic hierarchies. I also got a glimpse of how a liberation approach to education is specifically manifested in the classroom and how it can transform the relationships among students. A great conversation. I hope you liked it. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And reach out to me at Stephen at blackworktalk.com until the next episode stay safe and be well